in Webster's Dictionary, Webster defines the word passion in three different ways. I want, I want, to, I want to read these for you. He, the word passion has three definitions. The first definition is a strong and barely controllable emotion. I often feel this way with hot wings. You know, I just am very, I just, it's overcome with passion and must eat more. Um, the second definition is an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. And we would say, I'm passionate about this. This is the thing I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about church planting. I'm passionate about evangelism. I'm passionate about hot wings. There's lots of things that we all can be passionate about. And then the third definition is striking to me that it's in the dictionary. And it's this, the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last Supper and his death. The sufferings of Jesus between the night of his last supper and death is by definition passion. And that's intriguing to me. So tonight, as we go through these three verses, what I want to exhibit for you is that Christ is passionate about his passion. If I say I'm passionate about church planting, Jesus says I'm passionate about my passion. I know this because one of my favorite verses in scripture is when Jesus says to his disciples on the night of the last supper, he says, I have desperately desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And I kind of go, huh, Jesus probably had at least two or three Passover meals with his disciples. But when he says this, he's saying something I've desperately desired to have this one because this is the one in which I'm going to begin my covenant. This is the one where I'm going to tell you to eat this body and drink this cup as it's my body and my flesh and my blood. The Bible also tells us that Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross. So I know that Jesus had joy in enduring the cross. And so tonight, as we look at these three verses, I think we'll see that Jesus is passionate about his passion. And so perhaps we should be too one of the pictures that Isaiah paints for us, and one of the pictures I think we think of when we think of Jesus' passion, is the picture of the Lamb of God. This is a famous painting right here. The name of our church is Missio Dei, which means the mission of God. So in the spirit of Missio Dei, the name of this painting is Agnes Dei, which means the Lamb of God. This is a famous Spanish painting, circa 1600s, and Art critics will tell you this is a haunting image because this paint, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. Um, this painter was famous for painting emotive religious pictures. So he would paint a picture that you would see it and then emotionally you would, you would experience something. When you look at this picture, you should experience something emotionally. It's just a lamb lying on an altar and bound, but there's something about that lamb. You can see this in an exhibit called, the, called Seeing Salvation. So in looking at this picture, you see salvation. Now, I didn't study art history in college. Uh, I studied psychology, which was really was kind of a waste of my money. I wish I kind of would have studied art history. My wife studied art history. She's smart at this kind of stuff. But I wish I did because history is extremely important. I mean, no, it's not. Yeah, it is. History is important. But what I really wanted to say was art is extremely important. I think a lot of times I didn't know that. And I think a lot of people don't know that. Sometimes we think art is sort of a, a reflection of our culture, but really it's the opposite. Art determines culture. Did you know that? For instance, there was modern art before there was modernism. There was postmodern art before there was postmodernism. Art moves culture. 
So I wish I would have studied art. And if I would have studied art, I imagine, because I've seen it in movies, that I would have taken a class in college and the professor would have taken us to a museum and I would have sat there and she would have said, or he would have said, stare at this picture and make observations. And then it might begin to haunt you if you stared at it long enough. Hey, let's do that for a second. Let's make some observations. Um, Alex, all kidding aside, what observations do you make from this lamb? From the Agnes Day, circa 1600s. Yeah, well, he said all kidding aside. <laughs> Are you looking for an answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? We're, we're, he looks happy. We're close. The lamb looks happy. He does. Content. Never seen a lamb smile before. He looks content. I like that word. It kind of took me a while to notice it, but I've noticed that he looks like his paws are tied. There's a, a tie around there. Mm hmm. His paws are tied up. Why is that? He's bound. Oh. Actually, another title of this painting, actually, he, this guy painted two versions of this. One, of, one version has horns, the other version doesn't. Huh. Um, it's, it's sometimes called the bound lamb. Yeah, he's bound. Any, anyone else want to take a stab at something that moves them? Yes. Yeah, and, and they would. They'd stick him right there, and the blood would pour out and out. We often see that. It does. Yes, sir? I think there's a, what is that, a bowl above his head? kind of resembles a halo. Mm. Is it just a halo? I think it is a halo. It is a halo? Okay. Yeah. It's a halo. It's hard to say the word halo anymore. It's got so many meanings now. <laughs> I'd say he looks resigned or at peace rather than, like, sliding against the, the bindings. Mm. He's not fighting. His, the facial expression and the eyes in particular look very peaceful and just determined or resigned to the fate, I guess. Mm -hmm. than just, yeah. He does. I asked my wife since she studied art history, and she says, well, lining is important. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? Lines are important. And you'll see here in this structure that your eye is drawn through these, these lines that come in, and it, and it creates this X down at the bottom where his feet are bound, so it kind of symbolizes Christ. I'm like, thanks, babe. I'm glad I married you. That's cool. Another thing that's interesting is everything is black all around it, and all the light seems to be coming from the lamb. He's bright. He's white. That's cool. Um, so there's a lot of things there. The silence of the lamb is a magnificent thing, as, as you guys have all exhibited. He's just silent. Tonight, well, I want us to see in these three verses three things. First, we're going to see that he has, he's innocent. He's, he's an innocent little lamb who is going to be slaughtered for the sins of many. And we're going to see that in his innocent, he has an innocent trial. He doesn't say a word in his trial. He has an innocent death. He's bound and taken to death. And then lastly, he's even innocent in his burial. Even after he's dead, he's innocent and yet buried in such a way that makes him even more innocent, if that makes sense. We'll, we'll see when we get to verse 9. So we're going to first look at verse 8. I just want to read all three verses for you, verse 7, 8, and 9. Here is the word of the Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Then the second verse or verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And then the last verse. And they made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So again, tonight, we're going to see that he was innocent in his trial, in his crucifixion, and even in his burial. So first, let's talk about his, uh, his trial. The thing that we see the most is that he speaks not a word. He opens not his mouth. And so they're hurling insults at him. They're accusing him of things and he doesn't say anything. He's silent. One scholar said, F.B. Meyer, we give our highest eulogy to those who suffer for others without a murmur of complaint, carrying silently a load of pain and grief. And maybe you can think of, maybe some of you in this room are doing this now. There are people that I know who have served their parents or served their spouse, their ailing spouse or their children, and they do so painfully and with grief, and yet they're not complaining. They're just, this, they're, this is their life now. I just want to take care of mom. It's my job, and I love her, and I'm not going to complain about it. And we have in Christ this picture of Jesus who's taking care of an ailing or a sick world, and he doesn't complain. He doesn't say a word. He's silent. Nothing comes out of his mouth. Another picture that we see when we look at this is it's easy for us to think that he's just a lamb and he's being abused and he's being taken advantage of. But because of his silence, I think Isaiah wants us to see that he's giving it away. He's like, I'm not even going to fight you. Someone mentioned that in, in here. He's not even fighting. He's not even tearing at the, at the, at the what'd you call them? Straps or yeah. cords. He's just, he's just bindings. Thank you. He's just um, comfortable with it. Jesus even says this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again, which is awesome because he's going to do that. <laughs> he's going to die and then he's going to take it back up again. He says, no one takes my life from me. I gladly give it. In fact, when Pilate accuses him and he's saying, Just tell me why I shouldn't kill you. They want me to kill you. You tell me why I shouldn't kill you. Jesus is silent before his accusers, as Isaiah says. And then Pilate says, how can you be silent when your life is in my hands? I can't help but sing Jesus Christ Superstar for you now. You have no, I'm just kidding. You, <laughs> he says, you have no power in your hands. Any power you have comes from you. Anyway, I just, I'm not going to do it. You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above, Jesus says. You don't have authority over my life. I'm giving it. I'm silent. But yet you ask me, why am I silent? I'm saying, look, this is the way it's going to happen. This is the way it's going to play out. I am here to die for the sins of the world. And I'm passionate about this. I want to give my life for the sins of the world. The second thing we see in this verse, verse 7, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And the word afflicted is difficult because it makes us feel like he was, you know, punished. And he is. Um, but Literally, or more specifically in Hebrew, uh, the word afflicted should be translated humbling himself. So as a conjunction, if you put those words together, it sounds more like this. He was oppressed while humbling himself. He was oppressed while humbling himself. So as this Lamb of God, the more he humbled himself, the more he was oppressed. The more silent he went, the more non-fighting he went, the angrier they got and the more they oppressed him. Interesting to me that Christ gives us in his own life this example of humbleness and giving and giving his life and dying and not spitting back and not yelling back. 
I wonder if Isaiah is trying to teach us something about our own actions. It's interesting because Isaiah only uses the, the metaphor of sheep or lamb twice in this text. And the first time we covered last week, he uses it to describe us. We, like sheep, have gone astray. So we're compared to sheep in the negative sense because we're stupid and because we're, we go our own way. And Christ is compared to a sheep or to a lamb in the positive sense because he's meek and humble and he just gives his life. So perhaps we should learn something as sheep and follow his example as a sheep to give his life. Here's, here's what I think is interesting. The Bible does use sheep and lamb a lot, right? Shepherds and sheep and sheep pens, and there's all these illustrations, and I think we don't get it. It's unfortunate for us because we spend most of our time in a car or on a computer and not with sheep. Like I said, I've never seen a sheep smiling before. Well, I've never really even seen a sheep before, to be honest with you. When I was younger, I saw a movie called City Slickers. Has anyone seen the movie City Slickers? Okay, cool. Raise your hand again because I want to see how much I need to explain about this movie. Okay, a little bit. So City Slickers is about these New York cats. You know, they're kind of wealthy, and they go to, on this adventure trip to Montana or somewhere in order, or Texas maybe, to, to rope these horses and to, and to be a cowboy. And the goal of the whole trip is you need to man up in the, in as a, like a cowboy. Stop being a, a New York wussy. And so they go and they meet these crazy cowboy people, and... And they have to learn how to rope these cattle. And I, ever since I've seen that movie, I thought to myself, how cool would it be to plan a trip like that for, the, for a church? But instead of cattle, let's make it sheep. Like, let's say for three days, we go out into the wilderness and we have to move these sheep along and, and watch them run away and watch them come back and see them smile every once in a while and, and spend some time with sheep. How much would we learn about ourselves and how much would we learn about these? Anybody want to go on a sheep trip with me? <laughs> okay, cool. Maybe, maybe we'll plan it. So I don't know much about sheep. All I know is what I've been told. And I've interviewed some farmers. I've interviewed some sh sheep people. And they've told me this. It is a really strange sight to see a lamb being led to the slaughter. He says it's kind of frightening because they're so calm. It's like they don't even know what's coming even though they see all the sheep in front of them getting massacred. They just go, and then you shave their sheep, you know, you shear their wool right off, and they're like, hmm. And then you cut their head off, and they're like, hmm. <laughs> it's a strange sight. And Isaiah likens Jesus to this lamb who gladly and willingly and no fighting back gives his life. I don't think he's like, hmm, but I think he's passionate about giving his life. So what sort of example should we learn from Christ who gives his life? Here's what I think. As sheep who go our own way, we're not anything like Jesus. We're not anything like the Lamb of God. We're kind of defensive in nature, right? If you tell me I did something wrong, I'll tell you. <laughs> How dare you tell me? What about you? And then I'll point to you what all you've done wrong. So instead of if you put me to trial, instead of me speaking not and holding not my, I mean, holding my mouth and speaking out my words or whatever. Um, I'm stumbling over my mouth and words as I speak about mouths and words. I would say, all right, since you're going to say this about me, I'm going to say a few things about you. In other words, before you remove the speck from my eye, please allow me to help you remove the log from yours. <laughs> so we're defensive in nature. And we even have lingo for this, I think, like, like modern-day slang. Here's a, I'll give you one example. 
How about this? I'm just saying. What does that even mean? <laughs> hey, I'm just saying. I think what it means is I can't be held responsible for what I'm saying because I'm just saying it. <laughs> so I might say something like, you're an arrogant jerk. I'm just saying. John Piper says this, Jesus came primarily to save people from their sins. But it's clear from Scripture that another thing that he does is he teaches us how to live. He's an example for us. And so Piper says we're like him. We're, when we become like him as a lamb, as a sheep, for instance, we are transformed into his lambness, into his sheepness, into his likeness, transformed into people who act like him. Not act like him in pardoning, right? We don't have the, you know, the gift to pardon people of their sin, but like him in loving, like him in suffering to do good to others, like him in not returning evil for good, like him in lowliness and meekness, like him in patient endurance, like him in servanthood. Jesus suffered for us uniquely, comma, so that we might suffer with him in the cause of love. And as I was saying earlier, in my experience, even in the church, I don't have that experience. Like, I really don't see a lot of people like Jesus in the sake of love, in the sake of suffering, in the sake of being humiliated. I mostly see, I'm just saying. So here's our discussion question. If Christ is our hero and our example, and he shows us how to love even when we are unloved, what application does this give you for your life? And then I added these last two words because I figured it'd make it more profound. This week. So if Jesus is our example about humbling ourselves and loving those who hate us and persecute us and being silent before our shearers and being passionate about the way we present ourselves, then how should that apply to us this week? Three minutes. We're going to take three minutes to answer this question. Let's look at the next thing. He's also innocent in his death. I'll read the verse again. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off or cut out um, from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And so he is innocent even in his death. And it, it's easy to think as we look at this lamb, as we look at the lamb of God, and as we read these words, oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's easy for us to think that Jesus was taken away by this unjust system. And he was. He was tried by night. It was an illegal trial. Um, Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, but, they, but he killed him anyway. There's all kinds of illegality, injustice going on. But it's easy for us, to, as we look at the Lamb of God and to see these pictures, to focus our attention on the fact that he was innocent and this was unjust. But that is not Isaiah's emphasis at all. By this, this language, Isaiah's emphasis is that he suffered in your place. And that's why he's innocent. And that's why this is unjust. Because justice means you should suffer. Justice means you should pay because we're all sinners. But because he paid for us, there's where the real injustice is. It's interesting to me. Um, Isaiah is not emphasizing that Christ dies unjustly, but that he is suffering in the place of those who should be suffering. He's our savior, not because he suffered injustice, right? Yes, he didn't suffer injustice, but that's not why he's our savior. He's our savior because he suffered in our 
place. And here's this word. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And the, in the Hebrew word for stricken is a really powerful word. It literally means a heavy blow. It's the same Hebrew word for the plagues, the 10 plagues in Egypt. Same Hebrew word, the, the, the plague of um, locusts was the same Hebrew word, the stricken of locusts. The plague of the death angel was stricken. It's also the same Hebrew word in Leviticus where it talks about the leper's spot and it's horrible and it's heavy and it's deep. And so when Jesus takes this blow, there's this sense that he is taking upon himself a plague. And this commentator says, and if you can imagine it, the worst possible, like worser than leprosy. We talked about this last week a bit, that the whole song, the whole servant song in Isaiah 53 is really about this sickness, this plague that's taking on Christ, and that is sin. He is consumed by the plague of sin, and he's taking on the sin of the world for us in our place. It's so dark. It's so sinful. It's such a plague that it caused him on the cross to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which we see this, I think, all throughout Isaiah 53. He is taking on this plague. Interestingly, and this is interesting to me, I don't have time to go, go into it, and you might want to later, but if you read Psalm 22, it's pretty long. It's a, I think it's kind of long. I, th I didn't think it'd be appropriate to read it all. I just put some verses, some, some of it on the, on the screen here. All of Psalm 22, essentially, happens in Christ's passion. While he's going to the cross, while he's on the cross, Jesus quotes several verses from Psalm 22. Several things in Psalm 22 happen while Jesus, while Jesus is on the cross. For instance, they, they bartered for his clothes. They, they, they pierced him. So if you look at Psalms 22, and then if you look at Isaiah 53, and then if you look at the passion stories in the Gospels, it's almost like they line up completely. It's, it's amazing to me. And so Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross and experiencing the plague of sin, he screams out in a loud voice, Father, why have you forsaken me? Which comes from Psalm 22. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. That's interesting. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then the last few verses of Psalm 22 repeat and almost exactly the, the last few verses of Isaiah 53, which we'll cover in the upcoming weeks. Posterity shall serve him, which means he'll succeed. He'll be successful. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that what he has done. So even though he's forsaken of God, even though the world looks at him and wags their head at him and makes mouths at him, in the end, he will succeed and generations will tell other generations, this is what he has done. He has suffered for my people. It's interesting to me. Oh, another, another word is generations. He uses this word there, generations. Do you see that word right there? Um, and, and Isaiah uses the same word. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken? Okay, so in the Bible, the word generation is a hot 
trans is, is, I mean, the word generation is a hot argument. Everyone's always arguing about what it means. Um, it's a hard word to translate. For instance, Jesus says something in Mark where he says, this generation will not die or pass before the end comes. Well, the end hasn't come, and, and that generation did pass, I think. Um, maybe John's still alive, though. I don't know. And so our commentators argue, what does the word generation mean? So it trips us up quite a bit. And this translation of generation can trip us up a bit, too. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? So here's what commentators do. There's, there's, there's two or three ways to translate it. One way is to say line. Generation means line. So he has no seed, he has no line, he has no children. So who among his children have even considered that he is dead? Well, none, because he has no children. And, and that's, a, that's not a bad example, not a bad translation, because in the next few verses it talks about his, his non-children, right? He, that he has no children. But it doesn't really strike me in any fancy way, to be honest with you. So the other way to translate it would be his, his contemporaries. Who among his contemporaries considered the fact that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of the people? That seems to make sense. Except all the disciples considered that, right? They got saved. Even the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he, he considered it and he got saved. Even the centurion who put the nails in his hands, I'm assuming he put the nail in his hands, said, surely this was the son of God. So maybe that's not it either. <laughs> so what does this mean? What does it mean? What does it mean when Isaiah says, who among this generation understood that Jesus was dying for the sins of the world? Well, a lot of commentators, and I like this way of looking at it, think that it's irony. And it fits because Isaiah is really ironic. He uses a lot of irony. And so this is how they translate it, and this is how I like it. To say who among his generation considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of many people is to say who among his own contemporaries who are pounding him in the face and who are nailing him into the cross even considered that while they were pounding him on the face and nailing him to the cross, the very sin of pounding them, him on the face is being forgiven by him, that he's taking the blow, that he's taking the suffering for the sins of the world, including the sin of them crucifying him. And Jesus exhibits this, I think, when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They're not even considering that I'm the Lamb of God. They're, they're not seeing <laughs> Psalm 22 coming to life before their eyes. They're not seeing Isaiah 53 coming to life before their eyes. And I often wonder if we were there, if I were there, would we see those things coming to life before our very eyes? Here's this, another painting. I don't know, the last series we did, I brought in a lot of science, right? We're doing supremacy of Christ, a lot of science, and then the supremacy. In this series, I, I'm purposely trying to bring in a lot of art. No reason, just, just fun, you know, bring in a lot of art. So here's this art painting, 1500s, entitled Christ Carrying the Cross by Bosch. If you look at the painting, Jesus is not the center of the painting. Jesus is not the primary thing that you want to look at. In fact, he kind of is almost like Waldo in this picture, you know, like, where's Jesus? And then you find him, oh, there he is. Everyone else in the picture really is the thing that draws your eyes because they're hideous. They're ugly. They're demonic almost. They're twisted and contorted, evil people. I mean, I mean, look at that guy. He looks like he's had too many cigarettes, you know? And I don't know if you can see this guy right here, but I think I know him. So this picture is clearly portraying to us 
that the very people who were crucifying Jesus were wicked and hideous and maybe even demonic. And ironically, as art should have it, that's a picture of you and me. We're the ones who brought the death upon him. We're, he's suffering for us. So we're the one who sin and he takes on our sin. Isn't that interesting? Do you ever think of yourself as looking like that guy? Sometimes I do. <laughs> Sometimes I have a bad hair day, you know. <laughs> but there's Jesus, just like, the, just like the lamb, all meek and mild, and everyone else is angry and hideous. So Jesus' own generation who murdered him upon the cross had no comprehension of what he was doing for them. And I often wonder if we ourselves have any comprehension of what he's done for us. Some of you might be in the room tonight and you've never heard the gospel before, and that is the gospel, that even though you're hideous, even though you are sinful, you're wicked, we all have sin. We have lots of sin, and it just keeps coming. But even still, these hideous people, look at Jesus' face in this picture, for instance. He gladly, he's passionate about his passion. He wants to die for people like that, and he wants to die for people like you, and he did. And that's the gospel message. Well, the last thing that we see is um, he is innocent in his, in his burial. It says this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, to be honest with you, I think this is the verse, this is the stanza that's going to hit us the hardest. I, I want it to hit us the hardest. You might be wondering why. <laughs> it's not the one that we always quote. Right, we always quote the last one. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Those are the ones we would put on a coffee cup. We don't put this one on a coffee cup. We don't put this one on a bumpy, bumper, bumpy sticker? I almost said bumpy <laughs> sticker. We don't be putting this on a bumpy sticker. I'm just saying. Tell me if you've ever seen this on a bumpy sticker. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich. No. Oh. So I think this one's going to hit us the hardest. How does it make you feel that Isaiah parallels the wicked with the rich? And I'm asking that to a room full of rich folk. I mean, we're all rich in this room. You may not know it, Julie, but you're wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world, we are very wealthy. Some of us in this room may feel like you need more. You know, scratching two nickels together to make the ends meet. I know how that feels. Trust me, I know how that feels. But we are rich. Okay, so Isaiah says here, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, I've watched preachers try to do gymnastics around this verse to make it less uncomfortable. But here's the truth. It's a poem. It's a song, right? And in Hebrew poetry especially, there's parallelism. But even in modern English poetry, there's parallelism. You don't listen to a song about the Iraqi war and about high caloric food, for instance, right? If, if some, you're a songwriter. You wouldn't write a song that says, you know, the Iraqi war is evil and, I, and, and high caloric food is bad too. You wouldn't do that. Because all your audience is thinking, Does, is he trying to say that the Iraqi war causes us to have high caloric food? You know, you don't do that. There's a parallelism there. So Isaiah is saying, his, he was buried with the wicked, parallel, and the rich. 
the wicked who do violence, and the rich who have deceit on their mouth. <laughs> and it's interesting. I've seen people say, oh, well, he's really talking about the fact that Jesus was buried in Simon's tomb, and you know, Simeon was a rich man, and he bought the tomb. It's like, that's not what Isaiah's talking about. Isaiah doesn't know that, you know? Maybe he does. I don't know what Isaiah knows. But that's not how Hebrew poetry works. We have to stand by the parallelism. So how does it make you feel when Isaiah parallels the wicked with the rich, and why does he do it? One commentator says this, he's innocent. We know that he's innocent in his trial. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't defend himself. He's illegally tried. You're guilty, but he is innocent. He's innocent in his death. He doesn't do anything wrong, but he dies for the sins, for your sins, not his sins, for, his, for your sins. And now we're going to see he's innocent even in his burial because they bury him in a place that he shouldn't be buried he should be buried in a completely different place. This commentator said he should be buried in a place with people who are like him, not people who are not like him. And so this is a way of adding insult to injury, or as we would say it, I spit upon your grave. I'm going to bury you with the wicked and the rich because you spent most of your time with the righteous and the poor. So the commentator says, he is not even allowed to be buried among persons whose choices in life might approximate his own, persons who have chosen the good of others over their own comfort, gain, and power. So here's the deal. And, and especially, I mean, the Bible is full of this. God takes the poor. God takes the, the widow and the orphan and the, the lowly of heart and spirit. He takes them very seriously. And he's always telling us. He even says, if you've done it not to the least, you've done it not to me. He puts us in a place where we have to be just as concerned with the poor and the needy. Isaiah especially. If you read Isaiah straight through, man, God is repulsed with the money-making mentality of Israel in that day. I mean, you just read Isaiah. Read, read, read just the first five chapters. You'll see it real clear. And so here's what happens. He's saying that Rich people are typically the ones who cause oppression. And violent people obviously are typically the ones who cause oppression. So violent people oppress others, but rich people oppress others too. And now Jesus is being buried with violent and rich people rather than people who don't oppress and people who care more about others than themselves as Jesus does. I don't know about you, but this is frightening to me. Because even though I know that I'm rich compared to the world's standards, I also believe I'm not rich enough. And I will do things to get more. And in fact, some of the things I do is primarily be concerned with getting more and not concerned with giving more. Does that make sense? And so my attitude is just like that of the wicked. My attitude is just like that of the rich. I need to save. I need to earn more, not give more. But we see Jesus in this picture giving, giving, even his life. All right, so here's, here's the question. How do you feel about pairing the wicked with the rich? And I'm assuming your answer is going to be, I don't like it. <laughs> so what application should we draw so that our choices in life approximate his own? I, in other words, I want Jesus to want to be buried with me. I don't want Jesus to be buried with me and it to be, look, we're spitting upon your grave by burying you next to Mike Satterfield. <laughs> Three minutes. I want to end with one last thing. 
like most poetry, it begins and ends with the same concepts. So in the first verse, there's several things about a mouth. He does not open his mouth. He does not open his mouth. And then in the last verse, it says there's no deceit in his mouth. And the way Hebrew poetry usually works is it does repeat the stanza. It does repeat it, but when it gets to the second part, it kicks it up a notch. Always it does that. Right now, we're on the fourth stanza of this song, which is a parallel of the second stanza of the song, and it's just kicked it up a notch. If you want to go back and read the second stanza, you can see that. So how does it kick it up a notch? Well, it's one thing to not say anything. So sometimes we do this at home. You know, your spouse is complaining, and you just say... Okay, honey. <laughs> and you, don't, you don't say anything, right? You don't defend yourself. Most of us can do that if we really want to. But to have no deceit in your mouth is a different thing entirely. None of us can do that. There's no possible way that we can have no deceit on our mouth. We're all liars. We're all deceitful. But Isaiah says of Christ, there is no deceit in his mouth. None. And so what we have here is something really, really fascinating if you ask me. It's not just that he suffered and died at the hands of unjust, violent men who buried him in a, wicked, in a bad place. But Isaiah is saying something very profound, and that is everything that he said is true. That there's no deceit on his mouth. And part of his trial, if we go back to the first verse, is that Caiaphas was asking him, are you the son of God? Did you say you're the son of God? And Jesus doesn't say anything. And Caiaphas says, how could you not say anything? And Jesus doesn't say anything. He goes, just answer my question. Are you the son of God? Do you claim to be the son of God? And then Jesus finally says, I am, which is Hebrew for I am God. <laughs> but there's no deceit on his mouth. So Jesus is God. And this is where C.S. Lewis gets his famous, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's God. He's a Lord. He said he was God. You can't just say Jesus is still all right with me and not recognize that he's God. You can't be like, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm cool, with, I'm cool with him. He's God. He died for you. God died for you. And there's, there's no deceit in his mouth. So when he said, I am God, he's God. And when he said, I am the only way, Jesus is the only way. And so tonight, if you're here and you're um, wrestling with that, I want you to know that there's no deceit on his mouth. He spoke the truth. He said, I'm God, and I died for your sin, and I'm the only way. And I'd like to invite you to consider, as Caiaphas had to consider, as Pilate had to consider, and as Isaiah in this song is telling generations upon generations to consider, is he who he said he was? If he was, then he died for your sins. And, and might you need to give your life to him? Might you need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved?